Would you join me in saying thanks to Chris and to Sam? And I give a special shout out to Sam because um, I think he honors his grandmother. And we live in a time where there's honor drift. And I just pray that the Christmas season is a lift to honor of those in your spheres of influence too because it's a contagion when that happens. And thanks to all of you who are joining us um, online as well as at all of our sites together today and here in our Chanhassen campuses. We coming to the second Sunday of Advent with a series that we're calling Unexpected Stories, Everyday People. And it is such a great reminder because we're looking at some of these hidden stories, these hard-edged stories that always don't get so much airtime at Christmas time, but they're really an important part of the story because you're dealing with people who are godless outsiders and they become grace insiders. And we all want to be grace insiders. And so today we're going to look at the um, five mothers of Jesus. Um, did I capture your attention with that? Uh, I'm, I'm speaking about the women that are included in Jesus' family tree, and therefore they're in the line of the mothers of Jesus. And we're actually going to look specifically at four of them in just a moment, but it's an important thing to look at Matthew's gospel because it's a gospel that opens up in an unexpected way when it comes to the Christmas story. It's not the first go-to page for us, generally speaking, um, because openings are important. We're going to give a little energy and attention to them. Um, I, I know that for myself, just going back to 1977, I realized that openings are important to a lot of different things in our lives, including movies, because in 1977, World, our Star Wars came out. If you remember Star Wars, I know many of you may have been here uh, at that time, but I was here, and matter of fact, I was in Jerusalem, so I got to see the first Star Wars in Jerusalem at a Hebrew theater packed with people and with Hebrew subtitles. It was so much fun. And everybody anticipated that first opening line to come forth. Uh, once upon a time, uh, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, and it has almost that fantasy kind of feel. I just want to say that Matthew's gospel is not um, once upon a time kind of story. It doesn't even include in the introduction and his opening a nativity scene, a star, a shepherd, or a manger scene. Instead, it opens this way. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. What he does is he, he grounds the story of Jesus in history, in reality. He's saying that it truly happened. And that's important for us to give energy and attention to, and yet rarely will you hear this read publicly out loud. Even in worship services, people tend to skip over the names of a genealogy. You do too at home. Likely you're not going to have it read around the Christmas table as you come together and tell the Christmas story. You could call this the chapter that is the forgotten chapter of the Christmas story, but it's so important to step into it. In fact, it's about genealogies, and genealogies are something, again, we just kind of skip over. Um, I'm mindful of that just even in our own personal journey for Carrie and me. We splurged. We spent 100 bucks on one of those ancestor sites the last couple of years, um, and it was, uh, it was enlightening because I've told so many stories about Carrie that she is 100% Swedish, so we thought. <laughs> And the report came back, and honestly, we keep bringing it up. We have a good laugh here and there because, my friends, she's got 6% Asian, including East Asian. So every time I look at her, I'm thinking, uh-huh, sure. In fact, I brought a picture of her. This is Carrie. I've known her a long time. She's always been blonde hair, blue eyes. And that's our granddaughter. She's 
blonde hair and blue eyes as well. I'm just saying, keep your hundred bucks, okay? <laughs> or choose a site that shows a little more appropriate alignment with what you know to be absolutely true. So Matthew wants us to tunnel in to his genealogy because it's weighty, significant. In fact, that's the question I want to entertain today for us is why does Matthew begin with the story of Jesus with the genealogy? Can I just say something? I'm gonna share information um, with you today that may be completely new to you, but I pray and hope that it inspires you. We actually walked through the, the message earlier this week with a small group of people, and one of the persons had read the, the message beforehand and said before I spoke, I thought that was gonna be the most boring message I've ever heard, and I go, thank you for the encouragement. <laughs> but he said, after listening, he goes, I gained so much from that for himself. And I pray that that's the case for you as well. I wanna speak about four reasons why uh, Matthew includes the genealogy as the opening to the Christmas story. It's quite extraordinary. Let me start with this one. He knows his audience, and his audience values genealogies. See, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, his audience. He's Jewish. He's writing to his family and his people. And for them, he knows that genealogies are critically important. They are crucial to decision-making in Israel's history, practically so, so that if a person was to buy land or sell land, you would always check your genealogy first to be sure that land belonging to one tribe wouldn't be sold to another tribe. Or in the more weighty expressions of even service, because we know they had to select priests, but the priests had to come from the line of Levi. So you always check the genealogy, which would determine sometimes where you live and sometimes where you even serve. So clearly, he knows his audience, and they value genealogies, maybe more than we do, but for the Jewish tradition, it's very rich. There's another reason, and that is simply that he establishes evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. He's communicating. This is Jesus. God said a Messiah would come. And he's emphasizing the fact that the Messiah has come. He's here. That God said that the Messiah needed to come as a descendant from Abraham. And in the genealogy, he does. Jesus comes in that line. And we know a thousand years before Jesus arrives, the prophet says that the Messiah must come through the line of David. And in the genealogy, you see that indeed, Jesus comes through the line of David. Even when Jesus walked the face of the earth, friends, there were men who claimed to be the Messiah. So how would you know who even you would consider to be truly a Messiah? Well, one answer is you check the genealogy because if you're not in the line of David, you're not it, forget it. You're not the Messiah to come. And so that's a practical portion of it. But can I just bring that home to the personal relationship that we know um, that he had with his people? Because for Matthew, what he wanted to know first and foremost is that they would see Jesus as the Messiah, that they would believe in him, that they would follow him as Matthew himself was doing. You can almost feel it's palpable, his sense of urgency, that he would start with a genealogy to say that this is the one who's been promised, and I get that. I have that same urgency. I want my children to know that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. I want my grandchildren to know. I want my friends to know. I want my neighbors to know. And I want you to know Jesus is the Messiah. And that's the primary reason why you find him picking up this story and communicating it. It's so important. In fact, if you have a Jewish friend 
who is skeptical concerning Jesus as being the Messiah, and you have the opportunity to invite them to open up the New Testament to read, I encourage you, point them to Matthew and have them begin with a genealogy. It will mean so much more to them than it might mean to you because genealogies are important in their life journey. I was reminded of this just this past year um, with a book that I read the last December, in fact, by Steve Later, who's a rabbi of the largest synagogue in the United States. And he wrote a book called The Beauty of What Remains. And it was given to me by a friend because my mother had just passed away. And he thought I might find some encouragement in reading the book. And Steve Later had just lost his dad, and he wrote um, a message, really a sermon, for his synagogue on what he learned about death and dying. So I stepped into it, and I read it. It was so insightful and meaningful on many, many fronts. And uh, I learned some things about Jewish tradition that reinforced this very principle that you even see in ancient times with the people of of God um, called the Jewish people. And that is, uh, when a, a loved one passes away, the tradition in the Jewish culture is to meet for one week for Shiva. Shiva is the opportunity to come into the evenings for seven days and eat, talk, tell stories, and they always pause and they recite together the Kaddish prayer, which is a prayer that is quite beautiful, and it's declaring the very um, confidence that God knows what he's doing and that the promise of that loved one's life will continue on. What I didn't realize is that in in the storyline, he talks about that it is the responsibility of the firstborn male or firstborn child to be responsible to keep the memory of the loved one alive for one year. I'd never heard that before. I was really struck by that. And so they have the responsibility to go go to the synagogue every day, to recite the Kaddish prayer every day, and to keep the memory of that loved one alive. I find that meaningful because it's really saying that the names that go in our family tree have life and those, those lives have love that continue to go on. So after reading the book, um, I was struck by a thought and I journaled it and I've been sitting in it since my mom passed away and I can tell you it's true. You know that phrase, this is a common phrase that you, you express in life, that life goes on, right? And we use it in the simple things like kids moving on to college, life goes on, or a change in a job, life goes on, you go on to the next chapter. And even with our most loved ones, and they pass, we go, well, life goes on. But it feels too perfunctory to me, does it not to you? It feels kind of cold. And I think it's better to be stated this way, life loves on. And I think about the the paradigm shift in my own head when I began to live in that way that my mom's life loves on. And many of you are gathering for the Christmas holidays and you look forward to them, but yet you might have a lot of loss. There may have been loved ones that you are just really missing around that table this Christmas. And I just encourage you to remember their life loves on and to take moments to reflect. So over the course of this last year, I've captured those moments, kept the memory of my mom alive with my siblings and others, but as well in my own life, I've been ambushed with the goodness of her love that continues to live on these days. I hope that's an encouragement to you as you celebrate Christmas um, this season. There's a third reason why I believe Matthew um, begins the story of Jesus with a genealogy, and that is to reveal that it's not just a genealogy, it's a resume. It's, you could call it genealogical resume. And resumes resonate with us because most of us have had to create them. Resumes are an opportunity to communicate who we are with clarity, 
or so we think, because we tend to put into our resumes those things that make us look good, um, that we want to impress others with. In fact, I did a little research on it, I was a little taken back, that 40% of people lie or exaggerate on their resumes, not you, um, I'm just talking about inhumanity in all of history, not you, but 40% because you try to make yourselves look good. And if you go back to Jesus' time, they did the same thing. They tinkered with their genealogical resumes as well. King Herod, the great king, Herod, um, Herod the Great, what, what um, he did is he took his, his genealogy and he tinkered it in such a way, with it in such a way that he, he kept names off from his family that he didn't want other people to know they were associated with him. And he included other names that he wanted to impress others with. They're in my genealogy. Because, you know, you, you stroke yourself this way. And I bring that out because what's so shocking about Matthew's gospel is the genealogy is unlike any other ancient genealogy that we have because of all the people that he includes. And I only have just a little time to communicate some of those people, and I'm gonna communicate the women in particular because there are women in it. And that may not be a big deal to us, but when you're in a patriarchal society, the genealogies always came through the male bloodline, so you never or rarely ever saw a woman's name included. And yet here, in this one, we have five. And so what I would like to do in our time together is speak about four of those women, not all five, because the fifth you know well to be Mary, the mother of Jesus. I'm gonna hold her in a special place of honor and I'm gonna speak about Jesus and Mary at our Christmas Eve service. She deserves a dedicated sermon aligned with Jesus and what was happening in the heavenly realms when this good news was revealed to us. So we're gonna look at the four mothers of Jesus and uh, anticipate um, the story of the Messiah and how it's revealed through this line. So we find that the first mother in Jesus' genealogical resume is actually a woman of seduction. This is her story. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Tamar, you can read her story in Genesis 38 if you want all the sordid details because it's quite extraordinary to say the least. But quite a story she has. And let me just take you back to Jacob. Jacob has a son whose name is Judah. And Judah has sons that are not included in this genealogy, but one of those sons is Ur, E-R, and he marries Tamar. And Tamar's story is unbelievable because he should not have been marrying Tamar. She is a Canaanite, which means she's a cultural outsider. And she is a Gentile, which means she's a racial outsider. It was considered unacceptable in the family to have such a marriage take place, but Ur fell in love with Tamar, married Tamar, and they were together for a while, but then he suddenly died. His brother, Another son of Judah, not in the genealogical list here, was Onan. So he does the responsible thing and he marries Tamar so she's not left alone. It's a good part of the story. But unfortunately, the drama continues because he dies suddenly. That's just a bit much, isn't it? Losing both of them. And so she is concerned about her life. She's found husbandless and childless. What is she going to do? How is she going to survive? And she begins began to just scheme in her mind what she could do. And what she does is just, it's unthinkable. It's just unthinkable. Tamar decides that she's going to seduce her father-in-law, Judah. 
ick. I mean, are you thinking like, why would you do that? But that's exactly what she does. And she presents herself as a shrine prostitute so he doesn't recognize her and is persuasive and seduces him. And she gets pregnant. And then she confronts him. See what you did? And he, in brokenness and humility, says, she is more righteous than I. He knows that he had failed miserably as a Jewish man, knowing what God had for him, and he fell for that big temptation. And so she gets pregnant, and she has two boys, Perez and Zerah. Matthew includes both of their names, which is interesting because Jesus comes from the line of Perez, but he includes both of their names and Tamar and, um, and Jacob or, or Judah along the way because Matthew's communicating that he wants us to see the whole story that out of this dysfunctional reality would come the Messiah's line. Out of greed and deception and prostitution and seduction would come the Messiah himself. And it just takes us back to such an arena that you have to step back and just go, what grace, what grace. Unexpected stories, everyday people, ungodly outsiders who become grace insiders. What grace. So help me with my message, would you, as I go through these four women's stories. When I say what grace, and I turn to you, you say, what grace. Join me, what grace, what grace. grace. Yes, say it with some conviction so we can bring it home to why Matthew includes this in the genealogy. We find that the second mother in Jesus' um, genealogical resume is shrewd. This is her story. So there's Perez, the father of Hezron. The Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, and you're saying, am I glad Joel's reading this and not me? <laughs> the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Oh, some of you went to Sunday school, and you know that Rahab was the harlot She was a moral outsider, and she was a Canaanite. She was a cultural outsider, and she was a Gentile. She was a racial outsider. And you know her story if you were in Sunday school, and if not, I'll refresh some of you what what the story is. We find that Rahab is, uh, is tied to the larger story of an incredible story that that we even create children's songs around, that she comes into this story as the one who is um, related to Joshua. And Joshua, we know, has a song because Joshua brought the battle of Jericho. Yeah, you, you know the story. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho. Jericho, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down. We remember that story, but do you know the backstory of it? That before the walls came tumbling down, Joshua sends spies to ascertain the reality of what's happening in the city of Jericho so that they can overtake it. And they're caught in a place that they're in danger, and so they hide, and they hide in a house. It's Rahab's house, the harlot. And in that conversation, it becomes clear they need help escaping. She agrees to help them escape if, when they return to destroy the city so the walls come tumbling down, she will be spared, and her household will be spared. 
And that's exactly what happens. She lets them out through the window. They go back to, to um, Joshua, the spies, and the, the people, the, the warriors come in. They take over the city. And Rahab's life is spared. And not only that, her household is spared. And not only that, she actually comes to believe in Israel's God. And she actually becomes the great-great-grandmother of King David. What grace! I mean, unexpected stories, right? Everyday people, ungodly outsiders who become grace insiders. What grace! What grace! Begin to take in the story that Matthew deliberately includes Rahab and their dysfunctional reality to show where the Messiah actually comes. We find the third mother in Jesus' genealogical resume to be scarred. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And what an amazing story this is. I preached on the book of Ruth some years ago. It was one of my favorite preaching experiences at Westwood. Ruth is a Moabite. That nation of Moab was founded by Moab, who was a son to his mother who had an incestuous relationship with Lot and got pregnant with two boys, Moab and Ammon. And we have the Ammonites and we have the Moabites who are despised, considered unclean people, could not enter into a house of worship before the presence of God, but um, it's here included in Jesus' genealogy. And Ruth's story is so tender in so many ways. Ruth is young. Um, Ruth finds herself as an immigrant in Israel's land. She's a peasant widow. And God, with his mighty hand, is arranging something spectacular, completely unexpected. She crosses paths with Boaz. Boaz is a middle-aged guy. He's Jewish. He's a wealthy landowner. They had no reason to be together at all. In fact, they took huge risks together in terms of social acceptability by coming together the way that they did, but they did. And it's like God was placing his hand on them to bring together this racial harmony, this tender love, these bold acts that were hazardous concerning faith expressions because... Through them, he's gonna lean them through the line to the king of kings. So Matthew is deliberately including this dysfunctional reality in order to communicate the Messiah's line. And that's how a Moabite woman comes into the line of the Messiah. It's what's grace. I mean, unexpected stories, everyday people. Here we find ungodly outsiders who become godly insiders. They, they become grace insiders. And I think all of us have to respond the same way by saying, what grace? What grace that would bring this storyline, the way it does in this genealogy is so completely unexpected. And then we find the fourth mother of Jesus who comes into Jesus' um, genealogical resume in a powerful way. And I think I would call her um, uh, susceptible is what I would call her. Look at it. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, so Ruth becomes the great-grandmother of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Do you notice the change of the pattern here? Where's her name? Where's her name? We know her name. Her name is Bathsheba. So, so why is it that her name isn't included here 
And at first you look at it and you go, okay, Jesse, the father of King David. King David, oh, that's really good because I want him in my genealogical line. He's royalty. That makes total sense to me. But Matthew does not stop there. He goes, David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Can I take you into the backstory just briefly here? We find that David is a fugitive. He's running for his life because King Saul is intent on killing him. And he's not alone. There are a group of men who follow him. They love him. They want to protect him. So they follow him out into the wilderness. And they are known as the mighty um, men of David. And Uriah is one of those mighty men. And they become best of friends. And Uriah, along with the others, protect David's life. Fast forward in the story. We find that David becomes king. What an extraordinary story that is. And Uriah is now on the front line of a battlefield protecting Israel. So he's just got the spirit of protecting all the time. But unfortunately, where's David? He's back in Jerusalem. He's in his palace. And can I just say, it's never a good thing for a man to be left alone in a palace and bored. It's a problem. I'm speaking to men right now. Could you tell that? Because he went to the window of his palace and he looked and who is there but Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. Beautiful, naked, bathing, can't control himself. And he said, I want her. And because he's king, arrangements were made and he had her. And she got pregnant. And now what does he do? because he knows he needs to marry her. So he makes arrangement for Uriah on the front line of the battlefield to be killed, and he tries to hide his sin. It's so astonishing, this story to me, because David in the scripture is known as the man after God's own heart. So how does a man after God's own heart fall to this kind of temptation. If David is the example of the heart we should have after God and he fails the way he does, why does it happen? It's because he stopped looking up to God and he looked into himself and he failed because of the temptation that overtook his heart, which to me means that if we find ourselves on this day, um, guys and gals after God's own heart, it doesn't mean that tomorrow we'll be guys and gals after God's own heart. It, it, we get derailed that quickly. And that's what's happened to him. And so David is deliberately including the whole story so that we would see out of this dysfunctional reality will come the Messiah. I mean, just what grace that unexpected stories and everyday people, that ungodly outsiders become grace insiders. All I can say to that is, what grace, and I know what you grace. too, what grace. I mean, it's an amazing thing to take in this storyline. And we find in this story, Matthew's genealogy, a truth. I wanna go back to the question because he brings it home to us. Why does Matthew begin the story of Jesus with a genealogy? Well, the fourth reason is related to you and to me, and that is simply this, that there is more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past. There is more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past. Yeah, he wrote the genealogy 
because he understood his audience and he wrote the genealogy because he was showing evidence, communicating the reality, this, this is Jesus, he is the promised Messiah. And he wrote the genealogy as a reminder of the genealogical resume of Jesus of which we're included because there's more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your past. We read this story, it's shocking, isn't it? That you find in this story prostitution, lying, you find incest and greed and deception at every turn, and I could go on. You find moral outsiders and cultural outsiders You find racial outsiders and gender outsiders who are not allowed to come into the presence of God in worship at the temple, but were included and are included in the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Boy, you take a step back and you bring that grace home, which is what his intention is, that there is no one, not the greatest human being that's ever lived, that is not in need of the grace of Jesus Christ. And there is no one, even the worst person who has ever lived, who will fail from receiving the grace of Jesus Christ if there's repentance and faith. Love this. It's it's not that the good people are in and the bad people are out. It's that everybody is in only because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's our place. What grace it is. And so this story, my friends, at Christmas time is not a once and upon a time story. This is a story that grounds Jesus Christ in history, in fact, and in grace. And what grace, unexpected stories, everyday people, ungodly, ungodly outsiders who become grace insiders. It's an extraordinary thing. And it's a a reminder to us, really, of the reality of our journey, that there is more grace in God's heart than there is sin in your life. So can I just wrap up with a personal world? It's, It's a bit uncomfortable, I know, so don't raise your hands. But is there an adulterer in the room, online, at our other sites? Is there a cheater, a liar, a person driven by greed? It's consumed your life, and I could go on and on. Or maybe, could I get just a little more inclusive? Are there any sinners in the room? Now raise your hand. There we go. Let's be one together in this. Here's the good news. God sees you. He comes to you with grace. He saves you from your sin, and he resets your life so it's new all over again. He whets your appetite by the Holy Spirit within so that your heart longs for good and for God in all of your journey, which is why we say at Westwood so often that everybody is welcome because nobody is perfect and all things are possible with God and his grace. So you are welcome here and God meets us here and Jesus changes and transforms your life. So it's a great Christmas season, filled with joy and love, beautiful music, but it begins with the story of our need for God's grace. So as we come to this table and receive the bread and the cup, the bread referring to Jesus coming into this world, the cup referring to him going to the cross for our sin, could we take just some silent moments and would you use the time to confess to God your sin and confess that he is Lord and Savior Imagine yourself going to the foot of the cross and receive his grace. Let's do that together.
Oh, Father, what do your ears hear? I pray they are words of contrite heart coming from our inner being. And I pray that they are words of gratitude for your grace that reveals to us Jesus as the promised Messiah who comes to save us from our sins and set us free for all eternity. We need your grace not just to be saved. We need your grace to live every day. And so we come to this table because you called us to, to remember and never forget what was accomplished on our behalf at that cross because it is the gateway to grace. And we would humble ourselves in this Christmas season and say, thank you. We're yours. Lead our lives to do good, to be about God, you, our Father, and your business, to be and to love like Jesus. We can't do that without you, only with you. So bend your ear, look upon us, be glorified. And with your mighty right hand, lead and guide each of us in our personal lives where this experience that we're about to have around this table will point us to the very presence of Jesus who is with us and for us now and forevermore. We remember Jesus Christ.